boom, I think we're live. Mark, howdy. Boom, howdy. <laughs> Do you say that over there? Do you guys say howdy? Uh, not really. I don't know where that come from. To be, maybe it's because maybe I've got hat gear on. Maybe I feel a bit like a cowboy today. Yeah, <laughs> we had the Super Bowl yesterday. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. How did just, I miss that? Yeah, um, I, I thought it was uh, watched globally. Um, you know, there's uh, every Super Bowl gets around 100 million views. Mm. So... Um, if you go on, you know, my LinkedIn or you go on the LinkedIn of, of uh, you know, other folks here in the U.S., there's all these articles about, uh, you know, the the uh, Super Bowl halftime show and how they fund new acts and, you know, what should what's the pay rate and should they pay should they perform for free? And because uh, it's the biggest stage in the world where you have 100 million people at the exact same time looking at your performance and uh that tends to uh, catapult careers and catapult sales. Mm. So I don't know if uh, you know you or any of your listeners saw that, but we just had the Super Bowl uh, yesterday. I'm sure they probably did. I mean, usually I'm aware of the Super Bowl because nine times out of ten, there's some advertising campaign going on around the Super Bowl, and it's kind of like a a big thing, isn't it? Like who's advertising at the Super Bowl? And uh, I remember a couple of years back, one of the kind of like I would say biggest advertising campaigns in the in this kind of industry in the voice AI industry was when Mercedes spent I don't know how many millions it was but they spent a decent proportion of money on advertising in the Super Bowl slot over the, over the ad break and it was specifically I don't know if you remember that advert where they um, it was a guy who was running around uh, he's just going around town basically and like th- things are just happening and just manifesting for him so he'll go into a coffee shop and all of a sudden the coffee is just waiting for him on the corner and he'll go into the street and all of a sudden music starts playing and all these mad scenarios start manifesting themselves and then he climbs into his Mercedes at the end and he says hey Mercedes play such and such and the whole advert turns out that it was all about how using your voice to get things done gives you superpowers and the whole ad was all about the Mercedes voice assistant which is almost like a marking a kind of point in history where the Super Bowl ad is all about voice capabilities which was really interesting. That is so cool. Did you by any chance, Kane, see the recent uh, Alexa ad for the Super Bowl? I don't think I did. Not from this year, I don't think. Oh, it, it was it was like actually funny. Um, <laughs> it, it was what if Alexa could read minds and ah, it, nice. it would have, you know, you being next to Alexa and then you'd have, you know, your spouse and it would say, you know, reminding spouse to clean the kitchen, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> that is close. So it's it mad, was like, but it, yeah. but it just got, it shows though, doesn't it? How, um, for even now, I still think that this is a very niche industry that we're both kind of working in with very niche kind of emerging technology. Yet over the last four years, this technology has been featured in primetime Super Bowl ads, which is, as you said, one of the programs that has probably the largest live listenership or viewership on, amongst anything that ever airs in the world. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's the, it, it used to be sci-fi. I think that's kind of a, an interesting piece of it is that voice captures our imagination in ways that not of other, a lot of other technologies can. Like the closest thing that comes to it is, you know, flying cars. But yeah. if you think about it, you know, what was the thing we pictured, uh, you know, from way back in the day? It was uh, Spock saying, computer, 
And then I think it was Spock. I'm out of Star a Trekkie. I'm sure I'm <laughs> bastardizing that. <laughs> Computer, do this thing. Um, and I think that that's like, you know, we've like pictured that as the pinnacle of technology. And now that it's actually possible, um, I, I think that um, people are, are like naturally drawn toward it because they've been picturing it for so many years. Mm, there's almost a, a, there's the sci-fi element, but when you bring it into today, it's almost like magic. You just say something and something happens. It's like, it's almost like, it's literally how, you know, I don't know if there's any Harry Potter fans. Out. I don't know if you're a Harry Potter fan, Mark, are you or not? Uh, I've read, uh, I've read five of the books and then I got to uh, halfway through the sixth and I was like, ah, I just, it's not, I'm done. Well, I'm done. You're, you're more of a fan than I am because I've never read yeah. any of the books, but I've watched all the films and the films are pretty decent. Um, <laughs> but Basically, it reminds me of that where any any anything like that really. Basically, you've got a wand. A wizard or a witch has got a wand, and you throw it, and you say something, and something manifests itself. It's literally that's literally what it is, isn't it? And the more that the the, uh, the recent, I don't know, you probably don't have Sky in the US, do you? I don't suppose you have Sky TV. Mm, don't think so. So the equivalent of like Comcast or TiVo or something like that, where it's like your your kind of like satellite TV basically, and Sky is like one of the big providers of satellite TV um, in the UK, and their recent advert, they've essentially created their own TV. So it's a Sky TV, right? Imagine Comcast created their own TV, their own actual hardware, and you mm. bought a television from Comcast and when you kind of, you know, install it, it's got all of your TV viewing, you know, anything you know, movies, TV, the whole lot, Netflix, all built into the TV. But Sky's kind of value proposition of this TV is its voice capabilities. And so the advert is this little kid and the dad comes into the room and he takes the TV off the wall and stuff like that. And he's saying there's going to be a new TV there. And this kid's dressed in this wizard outfit and there's a big pile of clothes in the middle of the room and sheets and stuff like that. And all he's just saying, I can't remember what he's, what he's exactly saying, but he's saying stuff like TV appear or something like that. He's trying to make a TV appear. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the advert, the TV gets delivered. It goes on the wall and the kid starts talking to it and the kids and, and the TV starts doing stuff, you know, play something and play Harry Potter or whatever it is and Harry Potter starts and all that kind of stuff. So again, I, I would say that Sky are actually a little bit even behind at the times, but what what it is 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 a piece of hardware that's being created by a essentially a broadcasting company and they're leading all of their communications and all of their marketing efforts, they're leading with voice capability as if it is magic to use your voice to get stuff done, which is, I don't think it's original, but it's, very much like that in terms of how lots of companies are, are kind of like presenting voice capabilities. What's, yes, it was sci-fi, but now it's like magic, you know? Kane, I, I love that. And I'll, I'll say, uh, you know, my fiance and I, we got a smart TV about two years ago and it has uh, voice capabilities. So you, you know, click and hold the microphone and you can use the voice. And what's so interesting is that the speech to text capabilities are, awesome that the search capabilities are awesome but somehow they didn't sync up the software so the voice works at every point of the application so if i'm on the main screen and i say play netflix it's like looking for shows called play netflix it's yeah. like no no yeah. it's supposed to go to netflix um yeah. so how interesting is it to see examples where the voice capabilities almost outpaced um, the software capabilities, the you know the actual interface. 
Um, I think there's going to be a big correction on that now for the exact sort of reason that you just mentioned, Kane, which is if we have the ability to trigger all these things with voice, um, it's it's like missing the magic. And and I'll tell you, I, I take the the remote. And if I'm trying to you know, look up a new show, most of the time I will go to that giant keyboard that's displayed on the TV and I'll go up arrow, up arrow, left arrow, left arrow, A, down arrow, down arrow, right arrow, K. And yeah. it's like, it's terrible. Whereas yeah. I really want to just use my voice. <clears throat> I think we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. It is very fragmented right now. Um, when we spoke to um, we spoke to the the chaps at TiVo on on our podcast ages ago now actually, but that was kind of one of the things that they were mentioned is like some of the things actually I think TiVo can do, but a huge limitation of most. Uh, TV setups is that you're right. You've got all these isolated individual apps running on like an Android Tizen or whatever it's called operating system, but they're all just individual siloed apps. There's nothing exposing any content or data from outside of the app to the operating system. So the voice capabilities that sit on the operating system can't see the content that's in all of these individual apps. Hmm. And so, so you've got play such and such. And what happens on my TV is most of the time when you say play whatever it will actually just run a YouTube search because it can do that. It can just, you know, use the YouTube APIs, do a YouTube search and that's it. So you can't like, what would be ideal is that you search for something and every single app that you have installed, all surfaces, whatever matches that search query. And then you have the results, which is results from Netflix, results from Disney, results from whatever. But it's not quite there yet. There's there's interesting things happening with the TV, like Soundhound and Netflix have got a partnership now, um, where what that what that'll look like is basically the Soundhound voice capabilities will be inside the Netflix app. So if you think about watching TV, not only will you be able to search for Netflix programs, but you'll be able to utilize some of the Soundhound stack. So you'll be able to ask for the weather or order a takeaway to be delivered while you're watching the film and stuff like that. Um, and there's another really interesting company called Disruptal which we're going to have on the podcast, Alex, the CEO, we're going to have on the podcast in the next couple of weeks. And what they do is they kind of mine data that's associated with content, like uh, actors and all that kind of stuff. But it even goes beyond that to the point where you could be able to say things like, let's say you're watching James Bond and you'd be able to say something like, what, what is that car James Bond is driving? And it would figure it up. Or what's that thing yapping in the background? And it would say, oh, it's this type of dog. Or, you know, who's that, who's that actor next to Daniel Craig? And it will identify it. So a whole bunch of really advanced voice capabilities. But again, all of these capabilities, the Soundhound one, the Disruptor one, uh, and all of the kind of Sky stuff and that, it's all fragmented at the moment. It's not connected horizontally across the TV experience. That's incredible. Um, the, the Disruptor example really jumped out to me. It's funny, by the way, shout out to Disruptal. Uh, they're a St. Louis company and they were actually literally across the, the office across from ours. So we passed the oh. Disruptal guys uh, all the time and super smart group, super hardworking. Um, but I'm thinking, Kane, about practically how they, how they do that. You know, uh, who is the actor next to Daniel Craig? Um, so they need a, le- a language model that understands all these names of, of actors. Um, so, you know, do you go to the A list, the B list, the C list? <laughs> you know, what about an actor that is like absolutely never been heard before? So mm. then I'm, I'm guessing what they, they probably do is, you know, there's um, actual you know, information about the list of actors in the show. 
and it does almost a, a text to speech where it you know it tries to approximate you know how you would pronounce that name because mm-hmm. there's no way that they have every single actor you know loaded into their their language model but that's a really complex and and tricky challenge mm. to go from the speech to text to the uh, contextual understanding of of what is happening and then to be able to surface answers that are relevant to that uh, I'm excited to hear that episode. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I think it might even be next week or the week after. But um, what it also does, interestingly, and it's one of the only examples uh, of of technology of this kind that has these capabilities, is I know that Alexa and stuff like that does in part, but it's not really utilised. But it's essentially got image recognition as well. And so the way that it does things like who's that actor or what animal is that, is it actually uses image recognition and it marries that with the data that it has um which yeah it's but the potential of it is absolutely huge it's whether you know it's like everything isn't it like with alexa in theory you can ask anything to it same thing with google assistant but the reality is it needs to have the answers that are relevant to your question and when you begin it's not always the case there's there's so much so many questions someone would have you know as they're watching a netflix special or something that mm-hmm. making sure you've got data and content on all of those things is going to be the challenge basically okay and i I have a question that i don't know if you can answer but i'm curious um i i wonder why alexa has not gotten better faster it's just Mm -hmm. it seems like with their data set that you know when you ask you know i'll ask alexa uh not you know what's the weather um i'm trying to see if i can come with an example um like, what's the chance it's going to rain at 3 p.m., mm. right? And then Alexa will say, the weather today is partially sunny with a – it's like, well, no, 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 no. I appreciate you telling me you heard rain <laughs> and you started telling me the weather. But I want to know, and you can go to weather.com and find that specific percentage that says 40% chance of rain at 3 p.m. Mm. Um, so I almost wonder why Alexa has not gotten smarter faster. Is it just that my expectations as a user are way – overinflated or <laughs> is it that uh, it has gotten better it's just hard to to notice or you know or what do you think yeah it's a challenge so there's a there's a, a third party weather skill called big sky and that's quite good because that does exactly what you described it pulls data mm-hmm. from all of the different weather sources and it will give you more defined accurate kind of answers so it's not something that's provided by amazon it's something that's um uh, Steve Arkonovich, I think his name is built, but um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a good question to be honest. I mean, if you look at the performance of all of the voice assistants, Amazon Alexa, Siri, Google Assistant, and you look at like how many questions can they answer? You know, you take like a random two thousand questions and you ask it to the, each of those three voice assistants. If you look over time they actually improve over time. So if you look from 2017 to today, you will see that each voice assistant is capable of answering more questions. And so there's a question, I suppose, of whether they are focusing on all of them collectively, focusing on breadth versus depth. So the depth that you are requiring there from your weather it might be that they think, well, we've kind of got weather sorted. And if you ask, what, is it going to rain at three o'clock? And I give a general forecast, then that's kind of answering the question. That's good enough. Mm-hmm. Fine. Let's let's move on to the stuff that we're not catering for. So it could be it could be a breadth versus depth question. Um, I don't know to be honest with you. It's a good it's a good question. It has made improvements in certain areas, but there's still things that I always used to liken it to. 
like like I used to liken it to kind of like a restaurant where you, you shouldn't really advertise your restaurant and bring people into your restaurant unless you've got your menu worked out. And mm. Amazon kind of has its menu worked out a bit when it comes to Amazon Alexa. You can ask questions, you can play music, get the weather. Those core things have been sorted. But the use cases I always come back to all the time is like for me, on a daily basis, what do I need? I need email, calendar, you know, social media potentially. I need access to my notes. I need access to articles and things that I'm planning on reading or whatever. And so the the two killer things for me on Amazon Alexa would be read back the articles I've saved to my bookmarks or into pocket or something, and then take a note for me. That would be perfect. Just take a note, just take my speech, translate it into text and push it into Evernote. These are not hard things to do, but platform restrictions, policy restrictions, whatever it might be, certainly on the dictation part, uh, things that haven't kind of manifested. So it's like, and that relies on third parties, obviously, relies on Evernote, relies on Pocket, relies on all of these third party suppliers. So Amazon's big push to gain adoption, um, you know, I think they were trying to get breadth but yeah, still, still gaps and things leave, left to be desired, basically. Yeah, Kate, I heard a, a few really interesting things you mentioned. Uh, the first is that to answer that initial need I had, uh, the way to do it would be to go through a third-party app. And it kind of shows strategically what are the advantages of uh, verticalizing and owning it all yourself and what are the advantages of an ecosystem. And what are the disadvantages of verticalizing and disadvantages of an ecosystem? And it's funny that, you know, I'm sitting here in my, in my brain blaming Alexa and saying, oh, they you know, didn't give me the right answer when, you know, they're, they're thinking, well, from a strategic perspective, we gave you the ability to get the answer. We allowed all these creators to create the absolute best apps and specialize. So maybe, you know, the answer there is that, um, you know, Amazon, Alexa, perhaps need to do a better job of connecting people to their ecosystem um, and saying, oh, don't try to solve that with the, the built-in capabilities, solve that with our awesome partners. Mm. Yeah, that's what they tried to do in 2018, 2017 to 2018, 2019. They had a big push on developer evangelism and stuff like that. Mm. Um, but then the developers were finding some kind of roadblocks, basically. So, you know, that weather example in order for a developer to build that weather example, they need to be able to get access. You know, they, they need people to access that answer. So when you ask Alexa and Alexa answers, that's Amazon's built-in weather. Um, it's not it's not your... Sorry, I'm getting a missed phone call. I think someone might be at the door. Uh, I'm, I, it's, it's, uh, when you ask Amazon, it's Amazon's, it's Amazon's native first-party response that you get back what Amazon have built in order for you to get a third party response, which would be the big sky one, Amazon needs to at least create space within their kind of ecosystem to surface third party answers to questions and third party skills and stuff like that. That hasn't necessarily happened. So that, so it's always been quite difficult to get your skills discovered. And then the, 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 the knock on effect of that is that, it's also difficult to then have returning users come back. And this has been a typical cycle that's existed with Amazon Alexa since the beginning of time mm. where developers have always kind of complained about the lack of discoverability um, capabilities and also the uh, difficulty in getting people to return. And therefore, if you can't get people, if you can't be found, you can't get people to return. It's very difficult to uh, make any money from it. <laughs> and so those three things together have, have kind of slowed it down. 
Yeah, that that's a, a challenging business model for a creator. <laughs> you know, ho- hope someone finds you and then hope someone new finds you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But there is examples of where this stuff is. I mean, Amazon Alexa, from Amazon's perspective, I've always said that Amazon would be quite happy exactly as yeah. it is. Play music, use Amazon music, use uh, Prime Video on the on the display tablets, uh, shop on Amazon, and we're quite happy with that. Thank you very much. If third parties want to build on it, fair enough, but we're not really going to do anything necessarily over and above what we have to in order to, kind of push or surface that stuff but from a core capability perspective you could argue that amazon alexa kind of works for its purposes um and that's been one of the things about this voice technology and chatbots and stuff like that is that over time everyone's had a bad experience and they don't always work all of the time which is a nice little segue into the experience that you were telling me about with Mm -hmm. the company whose name i forget uh what was it called capital not capital Charter. charter Charter, yep. yeah. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, so Charter is one of the big U.S. telcos. And, uh, you know, phone, internet, um, TV, that sort of thing. And in the U.S., I'm pretty sure, you know, internationally, um, the telco space has had a reputation for having the absolute worst customer experience you can possibly have. <laughs> and, I mean, to the point where, you know, you you turn on the TV and there'd be a media story about a bad, you know, telco experience. And you're like, wait a minute, this is news. <laughs> like it, it was, it was really that, you know, that bad. Um, and, you know, there was a, a call from, it was a Comcast uh, back in the day where someone tried to cancel their service and the representative wouldn't let them. And it made national headlines. Uh, you know. um, so that was what, like the experience people were used to. And I called up. Uh, charter to cancel my service because uh, the rate had just increased and I, I passed my two-year promotional period and I uh, you know, found another service here that was less expensive. So I called them up to cancel and the representative handles it beautifully. The representative does everything right. You know, first, you know, thanks me for being a customer. Notices how long I've been a customer. You know, said right away he'll he'll you know pop down the rate in order to uh, match the other company and give me an extra discount on on top of that uh, to to you know take my last bill and bring it back to the lower rate and you know we have a great experience and he you know offers me all of these other discounts just keeps adding discount after discount after discount and I'm sitting here you know like oh my god the longer I'm on the phone with this guy the the more money I make. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. So what do you think is going on there? Do you think that that agent is empowered to use his initiative or her initiative? Or do you think that this is all strategic from charter, which is whenever someone calls up to cancel, give them anything to keep them on the line, give them anything to keep them a customer? I think it's probably, I would say it's more the former, that the agent's empowered to make good decisions. Well, I think it's a few things. I think the agent's empowered to make better decisions. I think the second is they probably have a really tight playbook because um, they've. That's this must be one of the highest uh, volume of interactions they get is canceling service or switching service when people move or uh, or, or especially when their bill goes up. Everyone has had that experience. Your mm-hmm. bill goes up and you call in and say, you know, why did my bill just go up by $20? So you know, that has to be a big uh, part of their overall volume. So I imagine they have a playbook uh, very methodically step-by-step, step, which offers to make when. Um, but here's the thing, Kane, how it ended 
is I'm about to hang up the phone. And he said, hey, you know, we actually have a mobile service. And by this point, we've been talking for 30 minutes. And I love the guy because he keeps just giving me free money. He says, we have a mobile service. We use the exact same towers that Verizon has. So you know it's a, uh, a quality cellular service. You know, do you want to switch to our mobile? And it just so happens that my fiance and I have been talking about uh, how we wanted to condense into one phone plan. And we just couldn't find a phone plan that, that had the, the right price and quality. And this, this guy sold us a phone plan. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now we moved our phone over to Charter. Wow. And you know, how much did it really cost them? It cost them going back to the previous rate they were charging us, plus like a $10 discount and then maybe like a $30 thank you or something, waived connection fee. That mm. was it. Mm. So I think that part of it is not only are they empowered to do the right things, not only have they worked out the playbook of how to handle these inquiries in a way better way than they used to. Um, so maybe it's almost in that case, a little bit of the opposite of autonomy. It's more instead of the agent just saying, you, know, you save them at all costs and the agents desperately trying to save it. Maybe it's a little bit more constrained, but in the third piece is that uh, realization that there is a real profit center opportunity uh, with these customer interactions, that it's not just about cost savings, that if you invest in it, you can take a, a, a customer service call and turn it into a sales call. Mm, interesting. And and that wouldn't have been possible unless that person initially had the right kind of attitude, the right kind of experience. You know, you were saying that you were getting on with him and stuff like that. It was like the rapport that people have. Obviously, the playbook and that kind of helps, but you know you've, everyone's had the experience where you call you call a certain company and there's someone who answers who doesn't really want to be there doesn't really feel like talking that much the, regardless of what the kind of thing is that you're trying to get done you can sometimes the rapport's not quite there and you don't really feel like sticking around in that conversation and so if you're offered an alternative mobile plan or whatever half your incentives are kind of just aligned to get off the phone because it hasn't really been a pleasant you might have got the outcome that you were searching but the experience itself hasn't been pleasant. So I wonder how much of that conversation you had was down to you getting the outcome that you wanted, which is a reduced plan or staying the same, versus the actual experiential element to the rapport building and how it actually was to have a conversation with that person. I think the experiential element was make or break, you know, because by that point in time, I was rooting for this guy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he was my agent. And I, I was like, I was like, man, I have a good agent. <laughs> I have a good agent who's given me a good experience and I want this person to have a great day. And I was rooting for him. And when he you know, gave me the, you know, the pitch for mobile, I was like, well, least I can do is listen. He's knocked off all, all this, all these rates and been very pleasant. Um, and it's interesting in the, in the IVR when it said, you know, you know, click this option, to get to, um, you know, to get do troubleshooting, click this option for customer service. Interestingly, um, sales was not an option. Mm. So when I called in, they didn't say click for sales. That wasn't any of the options. It was, you know, the only way I had to click customer service. So I'm starting this relationship as a customer service relationship. And he 100% satisfies the customer service need. And at that point, he can tell I'm a 10 out of 10. And uh, you know, moves over to the sales need, which I think is like perfect execution. And so many businesses have the opportunity to do that sort of play better. 
Interesting. How do you think that, because Charter sounds like a massive, obviously in the UK, not quite as familiar with the company, but obviously if it's a telco, it's going to have a, a large degree of scale. I'm imagining it's a very big company in the US. Um, a lot of companies that have that level of scale often have a level of either culture or a level of kind of like day-to-day stuff that they're dealing with and find it quite hard to make transitions into new ways of working. What kind of observations would you have or pointers would you have for a company that is trying to kind of take itself from this? We just have to get these calls answered and get people off the phone because this is a really stressful, high volume job and we need to just kind of like get through the day, trying to position themselves and transition into a space where a 30 minute phone call with a customer who wants to cancel is absolutely fine. We'll do everything it takes to keep hold of that customer because longevity and customer lifetime value is a priority. And then also we'll even try and see if we can upsell them at the end. That's a co- totally different culture to some kind of contact center environment. So what would you say some of the things might be that, that you would think companies need to do to move towards the latter rather than the former? First of all, I think that you have to just be patient I think that's not the answer, but I think that's just the reality of things um, is that it probably is a multi-year effort. Um, and you could probably, you could make uh, big head roads in a year, but if you think about it, you know, the average agent tenure, um, you know, doing one of these roles is about a year. And that's a little bit bifurcated with a lot of agents who start and drop off quickly because they're not succeeding or hate it. And then a little bit of agents who get in a groove and stay for, you know, two years and kind of a balancing out the sample. Mm. Um, but if you think about it, then you have about, you know, a turnover, you're turning over a new leaf every single year. So if you hire up your, your, a new agent class this year, um, you know, then that's the agent class you're going to have at the end of the year as well. So, you know, part of it then is going to be the talent, which is what kind of talent did you hire? And I think that's one thing that's actually been changing quite a bit is people are looking for folks who have had actual like resumes and experiences in contact center. And the better contact centers um, are saying that you must have previously worked at another contact center. So it's almost like a, a, the, this whole uh, career economy is emerging where you can be a brand new agent, you can be a, a, you know, a, a somewhat experienced agent, you can be a very tenured agent. And the complexity of the calls you'll handle and the sort of uh, brands you can work at are often dictated by that. Uh, but the talent's going up. And then the second, the big thing I'd say that uh, people need to do is uh, be purposeful and be strategic. And I think that that's the thing that the best contact centers are doing today. It, it used to be that that was the function you didn't really think about or didn't really care about. It was just the customers are calling in and we need to make sure that they don't get pissed. And that was, <laughs> that was the point. But I think that you know, folks that are looking at it and saying one of our strategic pillars is, is to solve the customer need 100% and then – when the customer is elated, always look for some opportunity to enhance the customer relationship with new products or services. I think if someone says that is our state of contact center strategy and pairs that with good um, talent and, you know, and looking for, for the best talent in the industry, I think that's how you create the cultural change. It, it just starts with caring and it starts with good people. Mm, interesting do you think that guy had some kind of agent assist technologies at play or do you think he was just uh, naturally as as dynamic as uh, as he was 
I can tell you he probably didn't, uh, uh, but uh, he might next year. (laughs) (laughs) So so on that front then, so as we know, agent assist technologies and and, and other types of AI technologies can help to democratize knowledge, democratize those processes and bring about a level of consistency between agents. Um, you know, some people might be more experienced than others, more familiar with the processes than others. Sounds like the guy you spoke to was pretty kind of like hands-on and, and, you know, fairly experienced, knew what he was doing, been through it a few times and had a bit of confidence or whatever. Um, do you think that the solution for those agents who might be new or let's say you're an organization, most organizations with call centers are having trouble recruiting. We know that, you know, we know that uh, there's high levels of attrition, as you mentioned, potentially annual turnover of staff. You've got difficulty recruiting because call center jobs have often been seen as in some cases, sometimes entry level kind of jobs, or in other cases, quite kind of like stressful, high demanding sort of jobs. Do you think that uh, uh, the, the answer is yes, as far as can technology help, but what kind of, approach should organizations take to bring in some consistency between the performance of agents? Is it purely a technological requirement or is there something else that can be done to get everyone performing like that guy you spoke to? I think that technology is actually the greatest driver specifically of consistency. I think there are things you can do, uh, other drivers to create great experience and that would be values, mission, you know, culture, training. Um, but consistency is not a very human thing, right? And right. I think that what's, what's interesting is for you know, many years, there was not a lot of technology being invested into the contact center. And we kind of got the maximum consistency that you can get through just training and reinforcement and, you know, carrot and the stick, um, you know, reward and punishment. We got as much consistency as you get there. And it's just, if you have a giant group of people and you tell all the people the same thing, and then you leave and come back a month later, they're all going to be doing different things. That's just like how <laughs> people operate. But technology can help uh, keep people on guide rails and, and help them follow processes and adhere to systems and let uh, you know the administrators know when that's not happening. So I do think that just the inherent fact that technology works the same way every time, obviously except for like small bugs and exceptions, but it's intended to work the same way every time. But people are not intended to work the same way every time. I think that that in order to create consistency, technology is probably the biggest driver of that. Mm, interesting. Yeah, doesn't get tired, does it? Doesn't slip up, doesn't kind of uh, fall off the rails and is very good at doing the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. Which, uh, Kane, uh, you brought up an example when we were talking uh, uh, last week um, about AI that is now getting better at coding. Mm, yeah. So uh, I don't know if you saw DeepMind. So DeepMind have been doing um, some research into advancing AI capabilities. And one of the things that they mention is is the aims of AI is to be able to approach new and novel problems that it hasn't seen before and solve them. So humans, what humans are really good at is we will use prior experience, intuition, creative or critical thinking to approach a brand new situation that we've never been in before and find a way through it. Whether we find a way through it to a high level of quality, who knows, but we're quite good at encountering new situations, using prior experience and intuition or creativity or critical thinking to work our way through a certain problem, which I think is where 
humans perform particularly well. And when people talk about this kind of like future of AI taking jobs and all this kind of stuff, AI is, is not yet at a point where it can do that kind of critical thinking and approach new and novel problems. But what DeepMind have done is <laughs> begun to take steps in that direction. Uh, so they created uh, something called AlphaCode. And what it is, it's an AI program that can be given a, a natural language command uh, essentially a, a coding problem to solve and it can then generate code off the back of it to solve that problem. So people might be familiar with um, the so Microsoft licensed GPT-3 didn't they, created this kind of like coding assistant, which is that if you're writing code, there's an assistant there that will help you, you know, finish off certain kind of pieces of code of it and assist you in, in the writing of it. Whereas this is arguably the first time that a computer has been given a natural language command and been able to write code off the back of that command, which is one, it's understanding natural language queries and understanding the problem at the heart of that query. And then two, it's able to essentially create a solution to that problem that it hasn't solved before and put together a basically a, a segment of code that is intended to get, uh, you know, achieve that result. They entered it into, um, there's a, there's a, um, online kind of like, uh, coding competition, and I can't remember the name of it. Let me just find the name of it now. It's Code Forces. And what they do, Code Forces, is like an online forum. They pose challenges and they compete to who can code the best solution. And this alpha code uh, was ranked within the top 54% of people who entered into these online competitions. Arguably speaking, not, not necessarily so because there's lots of competent programmers that don't enter these competitions, but it is performing, it's producing code as good as, arguably speaking, 54% of top developers, all based off of natural language queries, which is mad progress. It's, it's crazy. Kane, it's totally insane. Um, at, at Balto, uh, our biggest expense is probably R&D, um, and it is a, a massive portion of our, of our revenue line, and uh, and we like it that way because we want to make sure we're always innovating and that we're investing in the product and the cutting edge. Um, but what I just heard from you is that you can have a, an average developer, a 54 percentile developer, um, obviously not for free, but for some sort of autom in an automated way. Um, I'm imagining what that means for software development. Like imagine if you know you could have... Um, you know, we have about uh, 40 engineers at Balto, uh, not including uh, product people. Uh, imagine if, you know, we were able to have uh, five engineers at Balto, and then those five engineers are managing an AI that is producing what, you know, 35 people are. Um, we love our engineers, so we would never <laughs> want to do that. Um, but you, you get the point I'm making. Or I can yeah. even say, imagine if each of the 40 you know, we uh, gave them, you know, each of the 40, a 20% budget on top of, of their compensation. And we said, you know, here's your compensation. And then you have an extra 20% to go uh, use this AI and deploy it. And you're the AI's manager. Mm. Um, the fact that, you know, it's automated and its ability to scale um, is pretty mind boggling. It just, it means that how it, it it, how fast will we be able to deploy new technologies? That's what I'm thinking is speed. 
Like how fast can you go from not having much to having something that's fully written? And if you can write a couple natural language queries and have fully written software, you know, at the quality of an average developer. And if we actually get there within 10 years, um, holy crap, like, you know, we're, we're seeing this exponential increase in the speed of technology being developed. It's, I, it seems like we will absolutely continue to be on an exponential trend at that point. Oh, 100%. It's Moore's Law in action, 110%, isn't it? It's like, imagine all 40 developers that you have, each of which, I mean, I don't, I can't speak too much about the capabilities of AlphaCode. I imagine it's going to be constrained to a certain programming language or a certain type of task at this moment in time. But there's already been examples of GPT applications that have been built where you can literally just type um, design commands to it. So design me a website that uh, sells groceries and put a kind of like a pear-shaped logo in the top corner and make sure that the color scheme is red and white. You know, there's already examples of that happening where it will build you a design. And then once it's built that design, you then just type, oh, no, I didn't mean that kind of white. Can you make it slightly darker or whatever it might be? And you can essentially build a design of a website using, you know, typed language and so i don't know the con i don't know the constraints on breadth of this uh, alpha code as it currently stands but it's on that trajectory isn't it it's on a trajectory where any programming language any type of coding problem imagine all those 40 developers have access to one of these ai coders and it's like how many things could you get it to do on a day you know you just be literally you could be yeah it's frightening it's the the the, the hardest part will actually be feeding it with enough commands because your product road imagine imagine your product road yeah. being able to be developed in the next two weeks from automated code <laughs> yeah and then in that case the, the challenge is making sure you don't create you know crap that yeah. that you don't just keep creating because you're like well i have extra resources and capacity um and then you have you know a frankenstein application so mm. it, we might even we might start seeing you know, one of the major technology and product challenges being uh, too much breadth, uh, not enough focus, and that this actually could enhance that challenge versus, you know, wishing we could deploy faster. Mm, interesting. Do you think there's ever a point where products, and this is a slightly tangential question, but as things continue to improve all the time, and we're used to things improving all the time, we're used to things like even, you know, the Sky TV I mentioned earlier, you know, hardware gets a bit better every year. TVs get slightly better processors, slightly better pictures. But do you think that there are certain areas and certain elements that once it's done, it's done, and there's a standard and it's accepted? Or do you think that everything will always continue to be iteratively improved until something bigger and better comes along? So I think, Kane, you're asking, do I think that there's any problem that we're going to solve with technology and just say, it's solved, the problem is solved, we don't need mm. to continue working on that problem? Yeah. I have to imagine that... There is, but I think it's probably like an economic trade-off, right? It's the sort of trade-offs that we make in our own minds where, uh, you know, when you clean the kitchen, the kitchen is not spotless. Like you could find some speck of dust or some, um, you know, little, little spill somewhere, but you clean it to the point where you're like, that is done, right? Like that, mm -hmm. it's not worth my time or energy to keep working on that problem. Um, 
I think that, you know, and then when you have that solution, that problem moves down on your priority list and something else important, you know, moves up on the priority list. My guess is we'll solve problems where they are so nearly completely solved that it's just not worth people's time or attention or energy to keep working on them. Um, and then what usually happens is, you know, in the course of your history, that you then have some hobbyist who is tinkering with that problem and just, you know, says, oh, well, what if I could make this, you know, 1% better? Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> Even though it might not be, you know, the maximum thing you can do to, you know, make as much money as possible. And then, you know, those sort of hobbyists will tinker and find some crazy new innovation that brings us into the next next stage of things. So I guess my the answer is like, no, I don't think that any problem is ever 100% solved. But I do think problems will be solved enough that they cease to be priorities. But like the full cycle of things is that uh, people are just innovative and they'll keep solving things even if they're not a priority. Um, so I guess really what that means is problems will be solved faster or slower depending on how how close to being totally solved they are, but they're always being solved. Interesting. Yeah. That, was a good, that was a good quote. <laughs> what was that things <laughs> i couldn't i can't even i can't even i can't even that. repeat it uh, that was it was good it sounded good that though that was really i'll have to clip that one up uh yeah so so another thing um that i wanted to mention was that so i saw it was a while back now probably i would say i might be in last year you can tell me actually gartner uh, the gartner magic quadrant I think it was Gartner that did a magic quadrant on agent assist capabilities, and you were in the the leadership quadrant. Was it was it Gartner that did that one? Uh, Gartner did not do one on agent assist. Uh, we would love them to. Uh, Forrester did a conversation intelligence, and That's Gartner Gartner did a cool vendor. Yeah, I'm thinking of the Forrester conversational intelligence one because I remember seeing was it Invoker that was up there, Balto was up there, a couple that of sounds others. Right. Yeah, yep. that's right. Yeah. Um, so, so Gartner did do a magic quadrant on conversational AI mm-hmm. platforms, enterprise conversational AI platforms. And uh, it was reminding me of a conversation that we were talking about a few weeks back when we were talking about buy. I think we were talking about buy versus build. We were talking about cap- isolated capabilities versus fully kind of managed products and stuff like that. And it got me thinking about that while, while I was reading it because in the magic quadrant, you have... Um, there's about 20 of them that made it into the the kind of quadrant and in the leadership spot, there was like Cognigy and Core AI and Amelia and Omelia and OneReach and stuff. And then the, you had a few others like Google and IBM and Amazon were in there and stuff like that. Raza was in there, but Microsoft wasn't. And it was interesting to me why Microsoft wasn't in there. And, I, and in the actual report, it says that Microsoft wasn't included because they don't have what can be classed as a kind of like a, a full kind of platform. It's a bunch of capabilities that can be stitched together to create a platform if you want. Mm-hmm. Or they've just got so many products that they might not have submitted the right one if they did submit the right one. They've got Power Virtual Agents, they've got Microsoft Bot Framework, they've got Composer, they've got all the isolated capabilities like Lewis NLU and text-to-speech and speech-to-text and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, so it wasn't included. So, And it's just a point of, a pedantic point really for me, which was that AWS was included, but Lex requires additional capabilities to be useful, requires uh, text-to-speech and speech-to-text, at least. Um, Raza is a coding framework, like Microsoft Bot Framework, and like AWS, if you were to use uh, the Lex NLU on its own. Um, 
And so it was just a pedantic thing of, of why are certain vendors included in certain things and what is the difference between certain types of capabilities? Does, you know, are we moving to a world where the kind of productized version of things like Cognigy or Core AI rolled up into a platform product is the kind of like uh, marker for quality even though underneath those products actually some of them don't have proprietary technologies so core ai i don't believe has proprietary technologies um and a couple of others don't they kind of just pull in amazon and google and all these other technologies um so so are we riffing on the back of that conversation that we had the other time around capabilities versus products is are we kind of moving into a world where productized is a market of quality and isolated capabilities is not or am I reading too much into um, this whole Magic Quadrant thing? Because I was just surprised that Microsoft wasn't in there as well. Phenomenally interesting questions. Uh, f- first of all, I'll talk about like the nature of um, those sort of, of publications. And uh, the analysts like you know Gartner and Forrester are brilliant people who do phenomenal research and are very well read and have seen a ton of breadth. Um, if you want to think about how to apply that mentally, like, you know, what are these reports mean? My perspective is you can almost think about it as a snapshot of how the market is thinking at a certain point in time. Like this is what the market is saying at a, a certain point in time. And the analysts are doing their best for the speak to the market. They do a little bit of, uh, here's the direction that we think things are going but I think actually they do a better job of capturing this is what the reality is today. And if you think about it, you know, Gartner, um, as example, won't publish a magic car, uh, quadrant until there are a sufficient number of players that are competing in the space. Hmm. So if you have one player who's super innovative, you're not going to get a magic quadrant with one player on it. So the space <laughs> is already established. Um, so as a result, I think that um, it, it's a little bit difficult to project the trajectory of where things are going with the analysts versus, you know, uh, get a snapshot of where things are today. But to kind of round out that final question, King, because I uh, remember that you have something right here at the hour. Um, I, I think that that question is yet to be answered around are things moving toward, you know, breaking down technologies into their individual capabilities and then, you know, selling off each of those capabilities and people can kind of package up their own experiences or um, is the future people pulling from a bunch of different tools, compiling them together in useful ways and having a cohesive product or, or a platform. My bet is the latter because I think that, People like things that are already assembled, and that's uh, you know the bigger challenge is pulling together all the different pieces and making them work well together. Uh, not finding a tool because there's it's easy to find tools; it's hard to stitch them together. Um, so I think that that's probably where things are headed, but then that question is yet to be answered. Mm, interesting. I suppose it's a it's a control question in part sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes if you have and control and talent, basically. You, you need the people within an organization to be able to build stuff if you do want to have that level of control and bring together these capabilities or if you just want the output without uh, you know, lesser input, you want the results without the headache, uh, then potentially the, the latter. But who knows? Horses for courses, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, Kane, really, really fun doing this again. Uh, I always love these. Um, 
So, uh, so thanks uh, to you and thanks to your audience. Um, and thanks to uh, the Reimagine the Contact Center audience as well. Um, and excited to do another one of these soon. Indeed. A couple of weeks time, I think. Same bat time, same bat channel. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Appreciate it. See you, Kane. See you, everybody. Bye now. Bye.